from the Greater Omaha Chamber in partnership with the Hyder College of Business at Creighton University. It's Lead Together, conversations to connect you and elevate all of us. A podcast to introduce you to successful leaders and inspire the leader within you. Thank you for listening to Lead Together. I'm your host, Todd Darnold. In this final episode of season two, we're having a conversation with Mike McCarthy, the co-founder and chairman of McCarthy Capital. In this episode, we cover everything from Greek verbs to pattern recognition to community trusteeship. Mike is a true Renaissance man. Mike, thank you so much for uh, giving us your time this morning. We're so excited to have you and, and honored that we can have you on the podcast. Well, I'm glad to be here too. Great. Well, I'd like to start off by just learning a little bit more about you, your background, where you come from, and uh, what makes you tick. You know, I'm a small town Iowa farm boy. Uh, grew up one of 10 kids uh, on a farm uh, community of 250, which is probably now 150. Um, and uh, started out there, uh, actually went to uh, Mount Michael High School when I was 12 years old, so I haven't lived at home since then. Um, and uh, uh, to learn to work on the farm and, uh, you know, start out gathering eggs and doing all that good stuff. Uh, I remember we sold them for uh, 30 dozen. That was a case of eggs for 17 cents a dozen, so $5 and 10 cents, and I got the 10 cents. That was a big deal. Two Snickers. Um, and uh, so then I ended up at Mount Michael, went to another uh, Benedictine school in Minnesota, uh, St. John's, where I was studying to be a Catholic priest, um, and uh, graduated uh, with a degree in medieval English, uh, long hair and a bad beard, <laughs> which uh, kind of destined you for self-employment. We are right on trend right now, long hair and a bad beard. <laughs> yeah, I see a lot of that, actually. Um, there's more grooming, actually, than there was in the 60s, um, and probably less pot, although we're gaining in that in that area, I suppose. Uh, anyway, I started my first business, and when I got out of college, I started uh, in the construction business, because that's what I knew how to do. I had been working construction since I was about 14. Um, so I started a construction business when I got out of college, which was really just a very small town, small time business. Uh, started out shingling houses and pouring concrete. Um, eventually uh, started building projects. And uh, frankly, that was a good basis for construction. You learn um, budgeting, you learn schedule, and uh, those two things apply to all business everywhere. Um, from that point on, uh, we started uh, uh, making a, a profit and uh, learning how to manage people. And uh, I think I had about 50 employees when I was 25. And uh, it was really learning to motivate people and keep, keep organized. Um, and I did that for about 10 years with my brothers. They joined me. And uh, uh, started to make investments in real estate and bankrupt businesses and so forth. And then I quit for a couple of years. I, I did social work for a couple of years in the mid 80s during the farm crisis. And that's where I really got my MBA, I think. Uh, 
because that's where I learned uh, how to help people who have more liabilities than assets and work their way through these naughty uh, financial problems. Um, and uh, I'm not particularly proud of this, but I, I burn out on the social work. I miss the risk. I miss building things. Uh, when victory was survival, that wasn't uh, that wasn't good enough for me or whatever. And, and uh, so then um, Nancy and I decided to get our four kids into the uh, parochial school system here in Omaha. So we moved to Omaha, and um, I told my good friend and CPA. Uh, Rich Jarvis said I was thinking about starting a business, but I didn't know what I was going to do when I got here. And uh, he said, well, I'm kind of sick of the public accounting business, so why don't I come along? So we did. We started uh, McCarthy Group in 1986. Um, and we started out um, helping people buy, sell, and finance businesses. And uh, it was really a business brokerage business that we called an investment bank, which was a gross exaggeration, frankly. Um, but we managed um, to make a living at it because it took about five years to make a profit. Um, and we encountered some small businesses along the way that needed capital. And so we'd go to our friends and our families and uh, help finance these businesses. Um, one of which we still own, uh, Election Systems and Software. It's a company here in Omaha that employs about 500 people. Um, and eventually, after 10 years, um, we combined all those companies into what today is McCarthy Group. Um, and uh, long story short, eventually again, uh, we quit doing work for fees, and today we're pure uh, investors. We invest in uh, other companies. Um, we have investments in 30 or 31 companies today, all private. Um, and uh, we have a real focus in that area. So that's the long story. So uh, I'm really curious, you said you went off to college to be a priest. What changed your path there? Um, there was really three problems. Uh, Let's see, chastity, poverty, and obedience, I think, were the three uh, major issues that I didn't manage to overcome. And, and uh, um, anyway, uh, kind of a funny way of saying, I just uh, uh, decided that wasn't the right answer for me vocationally. Mm -hmm. Did it come to you pretty quickly that that was not the right path, or how did you discern that over those well, I, years? I, I think the discernment process is, is that five or six years that I spent in the seminary, uh, obviously at 12 years old, uh, in retrospect, you don't have a clue. Um, I'd say at 25, you probably have few clues, but uh, uh, it just became clear to me over time that, that uh, you know, that wasn't going to be a good fit for me. Um, but I think, I think the life's journey is a series of discoveries, and uh, I've been so fortunate to be able to do many different things over the course of the last uh, 67 years uh, that uh, it's been a great blessing, really. So as a creative professor, I'm pretty fond of the liberal arts. 
and I'm eager to hear uh, your take on how medieval literature has benefited you in your career. Well, you know, somewhat defensively, because I think there's too much focus today on job training and uh, getting a job, um, which doesn't mean much when you're going to have 10 or 12 of them probably in a lifetime if, if you're lucky. Um, so it's developing skills and, and uh, uh, somewhat defensively, I've told people if you can uh, memorize the 600 declinations of a Greek verb, you can probably remember about whatever you want. And uh, if you can keep all that organized, you'll be fine in, in, in business. Getting the first job is, is the hard part. Um, I think of a, a liberal arts background that leads to uh, business. Um, but beyond that first job, I think it's a, it's a pretty uh, flat and uh, uh, fair landscape. Any particular lessons that you picked up um, growing up in your early years and then going back to start your first business in, in a small town? You know, my father was a, a cattle feeder, which is a, sort of a, a gambling profession um, writ large at 530 in the morning. Um, and he, he taught us a lot about uh, taking risk and he would never let us use a pencil. Um, so uh, forced us to, uh, you know, do the math uh, in your head. So you're thinking about it, you're not calculating. And uh, so that, that certainly had an impact on, on me. Mike, as you continued your career, who else influenced you? You know, you, you learn different things from different people. Um, it was certainly apparent to me that hard work mattered. Um, uh, one of the first people I worked for was a contractor who would, uh, you know, hang drywall all day and then play softball till midnight. And that was a lot of work and a lot of fun. And uh, uh, he certainly uh, influenced me in terms of, uh, uh, you know, putting in the work. Um, we worked a 56-hour week every week. That was the standard work week. It was not a problem. Um, other people have influenced me as well. Um, certainly influenced, you know, by my father. My father-in-law also was an economist. Um, I talked to a lot. And, um, you know, when my dad was about 40% sure that you should do something, he would do it thinking he could work hard enough to overcome the negative odds. And when my father-in-law was 90% sure, he would tell me if we had a little more information, we could decide what to do. Well, the balance of that was a great gift to me um, from the two of them um, and uh, certainly an influence. Um, and then uh, I think every transaction um, you, you learn from uh, and you know, over 50 years, uh, you do thousands of them, so there's some muscle memory or some pattern recognition that develops uh, just from repeating uh, the decision process so many times. Does that become intuitive, or do you have a sort of a systematic way of capturing what you learn? Well, muscle memory is not uh, systematic. It's, it's just a reaction. It's, it's like, okay, I, I know what to do. Pattern recognition is, is somewhat different because... There you have to fit a particular situation into a fabric of experience. Um, 
to determine where it fits and uh, particularly uh, in the case of transactions, you know, how much risk there is and how much uh, potential there is. Uh, so it's a combination and uh, each deal is different. When we interview uh, people to be CEOs of our companies, one question I always ask is, you know, how good are you at picking people? In other words, what percentage of the time are you correct? And if they come up with a number higher than 70%, I'm immediately suspect as to their self-evaluation. And that's kind of where I land, I'd say. If, if, if I think I'm gonna be right two thirds of the time, you know, unless there's a risk that's beyond that, I would ordinarily be comfortable uh, making a decision, yes or no. Mm -hmm. How did you prepare and how do you prepare to be a leader? Well, there's a, there's a big argument as to whether leadership um, can be taught or whether it's inherited or uh, whether it's, uh, you know, environment or, or what it is. I'm convinced that, that all of us can become better leaders every day if we work at it every day. And that there are attributes which make some people more natural leaders than others, higher sense of urgency, uh, for example. Um, but th that we can, we can learn to be better leaders. Um, for me, one of the hardest parts of that was learning to be a better listener. And, you know, it's still a work in process. I, I read, um, my wife says incessantly, um, so I've been influenced, I'm sure, by the books that I've read. Um, and I probably read about a book a week and, and just really enjoy that. Uh, I don't watch television. We, we haven't had a TV for about 20 years. So the talking heads don't interrupt the thinking that needs to go on if you're gonna develop your mind. Um, and I've been influenced by undoubtedly every book I've ever read. How has uh, McCarthy Capital, McCarthy Group remained agile, open, uh, and, and kept its forward momentum? I, I think we've been uh, more or less successful um, because of our ability to recruit and retain talent. Um, we, we have some of the greatest young minds uh, in our community. Um, and uh, they continue, I think, to help the rest of us older uh, generation uh, continue to make good decisions. Uh, so it's all about talent, and it's only about talent, really, and the, the uh, uh, ability to uh, find and, and uh, inspire new talent. So when you're looking uh, for a smart young analyst or young leader, what are your talent markers that you're really looking for? What are those attributes? I like poor, smart, and determined not to be poor. It's kind of a starting point. Um, I, I'm not particularly uh, uh, concerned about uh, technical training, although most people in our industry today start out as analysts um, and uh, you know, learn to become operators. Um, 
it it's it's an easier path than starting out as an operator and learning to become an analyst. Uh, but we give most of our capital to operators, not to analysts. Um, to those people who have that broader skill set um, and uh, the ability to listen to the market and listen to customers and, and uh, provide product to them on a profitable basis. Uh, how do you measure success both personally and professionally? You know, when we started looking for businesses, we said we were looking for businesses that we were proud to own that were easy to sell. And by proud to own, what we meant was um, a business that made the world a better place, that provided value for the customers, that made money, and that grew. Those were the four criteria. And what we found over time was that if you invest in businesses that make the world a better place, are good for customers, make money and grow, they're always easy to sell. So we got rid of the second criteria. Now we just have one. And, uh, you know, that's that's kind of the way I look at look at, look at the world and look at business. Mm -hmm. uh, does your heart gravitate more strongly toward any of those four criteria? Um, I would say that we've owned a couple of businesses that, that in retrospect we weren't proud to own, and that was painful. Um, in, in a uh, heartfelt way, uh, like uh, we shouldn't have done that or we could have done that better. Um, I don't take too much joy in success. Um, it, it, it's like, okay, that's history, let's keep moving. So you really like the, the process of striving toward what's next? It, it's, it's a curse of never being satisfied, really. Uh, you know, to where you're always trying to, uh, you know, more, better, faster. So the curse of never being satisfied, what's the next thing that you're moving toward right now in terms of, of looking for um, successful outcomes personally? You know, I think if, if you think of your life as an arc that starts from ownership, I think it. I think you're you're headed toward trusteeship, and 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 that's where you're really, at the end of your uh, career, would hopefully end up being a trustee, which means you no longer really have a stake in the outcome that matters. In other words, more money doesn't matter, more success doesn't matter, more recognition doesn't matter, but you've. If you're successful, you've actually gotten to a position of trusteeship where you're just trying to make the world a better place and, and, and trying to make your family more secure in, in, a, um, in a wholesome way, uh, not just in an economic way. Um, so, so you would hope to get there and uh, you know, that's kind of where I hope to spend the rest of my uh, uh, time. Are there any particular causes you feel especially passionate about? You know, I, I don't think these are unusual at all, but um, it's clear to Nancy and I that, that uh, empowering children, um, educating them, is probably the uh, 
area where we are most passionate and uh, where you might you might be able to make a difference. Tell us a story about a time when you led with your heart without leaving your head behind. First of all, I'd say that that probably doesn't happen very often. Um, I'm a, a very analytical person who kind of goes through the analysis first. And then once that decision is made or that analysis is complete, um, which tends to provide with a yes, this is something you should do or possibly do, then I'm instinctive in the way I make decisions. Like I like the people, I like, I like, I like it, so I do it or we do it. Um, but the analysis comes first, so I, I, I'm seldom, I think, led uh, in terms of uh, business by my heart. Um, Nancy and I don't have any trouble uh, giving the money away because it doesn't mean much once you have it. Uh, you know, until it's shared somehow with your kids or your community, it's of no value. It's uh, you know just blips in some computer someplace. Um, so that's probably uh, an area where where I'm more comfortable uh, uh, leading with my heart. Um, but uh, I don't think it mixes that well in uh, making investments. What really brings you joy? You know, I saw my granddaughter's dance last night. That was fun. That brought some joy joy to my heart. Um, I, uh, I, I like to see young people uh, experience their first fish or their first horseback ride or their first successful investment or, or where these new joys are emerging from success and, and uh, uh, people developing confidence gives me joy. Well, Mike, thank you so much for your time today. Uh, I really appreciate the wisdom you've shared and I know that our listeners will as well. Well, first of all, you wouldn't want your listeners to overestimate what's muscle memory and, and pattern recognition is wisdom. but. After doing this for 50 years, it's, it's kind of fun to sit down and think about why it worked or why it didn't work and uh, uh, to encourage people to take risks because uh, that's what the, the future's built on. Uh, and doing nothing is, is an uh, underestimated risk. Uh, it's, it might be the biggest risk of all. So um, I, I really appreciate what the Chamber does and what Creighton University does to make our community stronger in terms of uh, encouraging risk. And uh, I just uh, feel so fortunate to be part of it. So thank you. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed season two of Lead Together, please share with someone you know and leave us a review. Stay tuned for season three. Thanks to all of you for listening. And thank you to the Greater Omaha Chamber and the Hyder College of Business at Creighton University for supporting this podcast. Remember, we don't coast, we lead together. This podcast was produced by Liz Kerrigan with help from Linda Schaefer, Jill Bruckner, and Peter Burnell. I'm your host, Todd Darnold, and we look forward to our next conversation.